All right, hey, I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. Again, this is not a rhetorical greeting, so good morning. It's a little better than what you've given so far. Um, and so if you would be turning in your Bibles to 1 Peter. David, did you break that chair? We don't, these chairs aren't free, man. Um, <laughs> uh, so we are in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21 as we continue our journey through the book of Peter. We want to make sure that we're keeping track, because again, with it being a letter, we're not doing it all at one time, we're doing it in parts. We want to make sure that there's things that we're not letting go of or forgetting as we travel along the way. And so I uh, want to just make sure that we're all on the same page here. And so this is where you get to respond. You can actually speak out in church, preferably the correct answer. Uh, and so how is it that, uh, that Peter uh, defines his audience? What does he call them? Elect exiles. Thank you. Uh, and so what does that mean, though? These aren't just words. They, they, they have significant meaning. What does it mean that they are first and foremost elect? Does that mean they're better than everybody else in Turkey, which is where they are? What does it mean? They are chosen by God to be better than everybody else in Turkey. No. Why are they chosen by God? Well, that's a circular answer to the question, Gretchen. You can't do that. You got to have something. Hey, Van, how are you? Uh, and so why do you choose them? What, what's their purpose? Somebody else, give it a try. Kenny, come on. Spread the gospel. Yes. They are to display the glory of God. So they're chosen for a purpose. This is critical because I think sometimes we get tangled up in the, uh, the language of election and predestination, those kind of things, and we immediately say, well, this doesn't sound very fair. And you're right. If they were being chosen to be better than everybody else instead of being chosen to let everybody else know how much God loves them, that is why they are chosen. That's why you and I have been redeemed. And so when we, we don't live that out, we really aren't living out the purpose for which we have been elect. So elect has to do with the relationship to God, but the exile part's important too. Exile lets them know they're better than everybody else, right? At some point, we've got to be better than somebody, right? What's the good in being a Christian if you can't be better than somebody? That's a joke, by the way, for those of you who don't know sarcasm. I'm gifted with it. Uh, no, we are not better than anybody else. However, we are to be what? Come on, you can say it. Different. Great. Thank you. Uh, we are to be different. We are to stand out, which, by the way, is such a fascinating thing to me because for those of you who have kids that are heading into either middle school or high school, it's, they crack me up with this stuff. They, they want to be so different, but they don't want anybody to acknowledge their difference. Wait, what? How does that work? They want to stand out, stand apart from, but have no one actually acknowledge that there's a difference or they stand out or they are set apart. And we kind of do the same thing, right? We're guilty of it, uh, of saying, no, 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 I, I want to be, be different than those Christians who voted for those people. I want to be different than those Christians who say those kinds of things on social media. I want to be different than those Christians who think they're better than everybody else because I'm better than them. And I just want you to know, when instead what we should be most concerned with is whether or not we are glorifying the Lord our God with our lives. Regardless of all that, all that other stuff is just distraction and nonsense and red herring. The devil longs for you to get all tangled up in the wrong set of differences and the wrong set of likenesses and forget who you are and what you were designed to be so that you can't taste of the goodness of God and the power and the glory. We are exiles because this world ultimately is not our home. But it doesn't mean we don't care about the world, right? We do because we want to see the world filled with the glory of God. And we want to see as many people come into the family as is possible in God's will uh, and in his power. And so we have to be set apart, though. We have to be other than. We have to recognize that this is not neutral. Nothing here is neutral. And so he starts off with calling them, and this identity is critical, elect exiles. It's their relationship to God and their relationship to the world. And remember, that relationship is most displayed in and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which gives them a living hope. 
which is different than a dead hope, which is different than a powerless hope. This is a living hope, something that, that affects how they go about their lives, which is where they should really, the difference should be most displayed. That we, of all people, have a hope that matters. Doesn't mean that, does it mean we'll never be depressed? If you're a Christian, you shouldn't be depressed. Is that true? Psalm 42 and 43 says otherwise. Gethsemane says otherwise. The cross says otherwise. Um, Paul says otherwise. Peter says otherwise. We, if you are engaging a world in which this is not your home and you have a different identity, what's the likelihood you're going to run upon a little bit of mental stress and strain? High, very high. And so it's not that, that we, we are to have a hope that is somehow um, uh, bumper stickerish, or in any way, shape, or form, pithy platitudes uh, that, that really don't mean anything. And we can be way guilty of that, of reducing things, reducing the tension, uh, of making things into something that is not really all that dynamic and living after all. And so Peter is calling for us to live in the tension in light of the resurrection because of the living hope that Christ has purchased for all time for us. So it's because of the gospel and God's love for us that we can be who he's called us to be in a fallen world. Amen? Let me try that one more time. It is because of this great thing called the gospel that Jesus died and he rose again and he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is making intercession for you who didn't open your mouth the first time, even now. And he's going to come again and he's going to welcome you in anyway, whether you said anything or not. And it's because of that that you get to live out in such a way that the world looks on that and says, I want that. I want to be a child of that Father. Amen? Amen. Good. You jumped the gun a little bit, but you're strong. You're strong. You're strong. I like it. All right, and so because of all that, because of those indicatives, we get to now come to the imperatives. And listen to what Edmund Clowney says. I, I just love the way he puts this. He says, the imperatives of Christian living always begin with therefore. Peter does not begin to exhort Christian pilgrims until he has celebrated the wonders of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. The indicative of what God had done for us and in us precedes the imperative of what we are called to do for him. If you want to know how to stay out of the quagmire of legalism versus cheap grace, this is it. Keep the cart and the horse in the right order and you will do fine. Because that which God began, he will finish. Always, always do what you do out of God's love for you, knowing that his love doesn't vacillate based on whether you stay awake for this sermon, whether you answer the questions right, whether you do any of those things. It's not going to vacillate. He still loves you. Now, it's better for you if you do some of those things, more than likely. However, uh, maybe you're just not going to be able to today. And that's okay. Because God loves you and not in your perfection, and he knew you weren't going to be perfect, and he knew you couldn't be what he longs for you to be unless he were to send his son to do all of those things that are just part of the gospel, and grants all the means of grace to continue to remind you and build us up and grant us every chance possible to taste and see that he is good. See, I think we uh, instead of recognizing that we have been invited into this fantastic, redemptive narrative, we've lost somewhere along the way our reverence and our awe. Somewhere along the way, we have uh, fit bodies and fat minds, to quote a, a book that was written back in the 80s. Somewhere along the way, we, we lost our hope. And we we're just whistling past the graveyard with the majority of the religious stuff we're doing. If we're not careful. And so, so Peter's desire, my desire, is that we would recognize that we are being invited into so grand a work that it should just blow our minds. That he would say, I want you to be part of things that will last for an eternity. That you will be able to celebrate and be celebrated for an eternity. 
I don't want you tangled up in all of this earthliness, meaning all of the brokenness and fallenness, which is why he, Paul says in Colossians, look not to the things of the earth, but to the right hand of the Father where Christ is seated on high, where your life is hidden until it's to be revealed in the time when he returns. But we, we get so tangled up, don't we? We are so easily morally outraged that somebody else doesn't think exactly like we do. We are so easily entangled when we don't sing the song the right way. At least the 1911 way, maybe the 1874 way, who knows. But we know it's not sung the right way. We get so easily entangled when, when someone doesn't acknowledge us. We are so easily entangled. And why? Because we've invested and cultivated so little of the salvation and its greatness that we've been given. We think it just ought to come natural. It doesn't. There is effort that is necessary. Once the indicative has been placed on you, the imperative is now go and do something with it. That's what Peter's going to tell us. But before we do that, let me ask you a question. What's your current lived response to your salvation through God's grace alone, in Christ alone, by faith alone. Let me ask that again. You guys look like you're like, mm. <laughs> what is your, not your neighbor's, not mine, your personal lived response, meaning how you live as a result of the fact that you've been saved, and all of this matters, because Peter's already unpacked this for us, by God's grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. Because the answer to that question is, is the world is actually answering it by looking on you and making a judgment. Right? Remember, Jesus gave the world in some measure some power here. And John, he says, the world will know, decide who you are by the love that you have for one another. Now, that doesn't mean they get to decide your eternal destination, but they definitely get to decide what your identity is here in some measure. And that, that should affect us. And you may say, well, I don't really do a lot of witnessing. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Let me give you an example. Um, so my wife and I own about an acre of grass, okay? And the front part, uh, apparently they put a pipe in some time ago before we ever bought this place, and they, they seeded it with a different kind of grass than is the rest of the yard, okay? So the front portion is, I think it's Bermuda. It's like really fine hay. Well, it turns out uh, that in God's great grace, I'm allergic to that grass. And no matter what I do, uh, I, I take medicine, wear a mask, I can't, it just doesn't, it doesn't bode well for me to cut it. And my wife, who's also a gift of great grace, said, I want to be able to sleep at night and not listen to you sound like a, the death rattle, and so I'll cut it. Well, here's the thing that you don't know. you got to cut it with a push mower because it's so persnickety I won't just want to tear it up and put down concrete, but it's so persnickety, you got to cut it with a push mower and bag it. So she does all that, okay? And I cut the rest of it. It's a small part of the, of the total yard, but it's the front part. And I, as the king of my kingdom, ride around on the riding lawnmower and make sure Susan's doing her job well. <laughs> At least that's what the neighbors think. And this is how I found out. So a, a, a fellow presbyter from a local church that we don't live too far from, Midway, uh, <laughs> rode by and, and confronted me at Daily Grind one day. And he said, hey, I rode by your house the other day, and I see a woman out there pushing a mower. And I see a guy riding around looking real comfortable. <laughs> and I said, well... If you're jealous, come talk to me. I'll teach you how I, I got there. Uh, and no, and it's Mark Harrington, for those of you who know Mark Harrington. And he was laughing about it. But it's, here's, here's the thing. It dawned on me, oh, no. What do my neighbors think? 
because there's no context. So my nearest neighbor, he's, he's from Britain, and, uh, and so he, he came over, and, and, and we were talking, and I said, hey, Ken, I just want to be honest with you about something, and he kind of looked at me, and I said, I, I'm not the tyrant that you may think I am. I don't make my wife cut that grass, and I explained it to him. Well, he laughed in a way that let me know they were all thinking that. <laughs> and so now I've got to make flyers and put it on everybody's cars all around the neighborhood to try to save my good name. But here's, here, so, so think about, now that's a, a slightly silly example. But people have strong, I guarantee you, they have, there's a whole narrative and story they've formed in their minds I can almost guarantee you, you do it too with some of your neighbors. You come up with these all, this whole story that, that you think fits with whatever that narrative may be. So people are watching you way more than you recognize. They are, they are thinking through your character in ways that you don't even spend time thinking through, and you ought. So this is why it's, it matters to answer this question of what is your current lived response to your salvation, beginning with... First of all, understanding what that salvation is, which is what Peter's tried to unpack for us. And so it's important for us to keep coming back to that because we lose the handle, don't we? So that being said, let us step into the text and at least read one verse before 1130. This is 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Therefore... Because of all that great salvation that you've been given, that living hope, that resurrection, that election, that, all that power and glory. Because of that, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded, setting your hope fully on the grace that will, will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So let's walk through this. So he says, because of all that salvation, now you need to do something. And he says, he uses the term prepare. Well, in, in the Greek, it's a, it's a bit stronger than that. It actually means to gird up your interior, to stabilize one's core. Right, Jenny? Very important. You can't go around with a floppy core. But to stabilize oneself at the strongest point or the potential weakest point, to make sure that you have a firm foundation and that everything you do is off of that firm foundation, which is your salvation in Christ. Your identity as the elect of God the Father who has given so much to you. Remember what he said about the prophets in the previous verses, in verses 10 through 12, he says, they searched diligently. In the same way, you are to cultivate diligently your understanding of what it means to be saved, of what it means to be elect, of what it means to be resurrected in Christ. And so he, he's saying you, you've got to prepare in that. You've got to fashion that. You've got to stabilize that, gird that up. For action. So it's not that you are to be able to win your local Bible quiz bowl. Do we have those? Is there such a thing in the homeschool movement, classical conversations, anybody? All right. So, or be able to beat people at Bible apples, for, apples to apples, which is a real thing, by the way. We used to own it, and I got rid of it because I didn't want nobody to know I owned it. And so it's, it's not just for knowledge's sake, which... You may say, yeah, I get that. Mm, do you? Do you get that your calling is not just to know a bunch of stuff about the Bible and be able to throw it at people, but instead to live it out in such a way that they wish to inquire and seek and be prepared themselves? This is why I said uh, the slightly provocative statement that systematic theology is dangerous in this regard. Because oftentimes it takes and tries to overly reduce the dialectical tensions that live in Scripture and in the Gospel and are just life. And we can cut stuff off to try to get rid of it or shove it under the bed. If we're not careful, let me qualify. I don't think systematic theology is all bad. I had four courses of it in seminary. 
It could be a great thing as long as you recognize that its purpose is the prepare part and that you should act out of it, your understanding of it, and that you shouldn't reduce every tension with it. Because God has seen fit to leave some tensions until Christ returns. A lot of why questions. And so he's saying you are to be prepared for action. And what kind of action? Well, that's what the whole rest of the letter is going to tell us. How to be a citizen in a kingdom that doesn't share your ethics or your views or your understandings. Does that sound familiar at all? How to live out marriages that are complex and not easy. Sound familiar at all? That was rhetorical. Don't answer that. Or how to suffer well. Something we need to understand. And so, so the action is ultimately to display the glory of God so that others would come to know in a living way. Not just hit them with the four spiritual laws, which I don't have a problem with, by the way, but something has to back it up. Something has to be incarnated so that that has meaning in the life of the person with whom you are sharing those things. It has to be evidenced in you. And so he says, prepare your minds for action. Let me read to you just real quick a quote uh, from Mary Shelley's mother, a lady named Mary Wollstonecraft, who wrote a book called, and don't panic, A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. All right? And so she has this great line about learning uh, that I think we need to hear because I think that we sometimes dissociate and, 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 and make our religious lives, all about taking on information. So listen, if you would, uh, to Mary Wollstonecraft. She says, the fact is that men expect from education what education cannot give. Well, that's provocative. A sagacious parent or tutor may strengthen the body and sharpen the instruments by which the child is to gather knowledge. But... The honey must be the reward of the individual's own industry. Did you hear that? You can, you can help people to do everything they can to learn something well, but you cannot make them make it their own. You cannot make them uh, love it. You cannot make them apply it. You cannot make them uh, live it out. You can lead a horse to war. You can even make that rascal drink, but what you cannot do is change his mind. There's another way of putting that. She goes on, It is almost as absurd to attempt to make a youth wise by the experience of another as to expect the body to grow strong by the exercise which is only talked of or seen. What'd she just say? Well, what she just said, and how this applies to us, that an unlived Christianity is a stillborn Christianity. That a Christianity that is not practiced or experienced or given opportunity to flourish and grow through action is a Christianity for which there will be no excitement or love or care, more than likely. And it will probably die in a generation if we're not careful, which we've seen some of. What generation of the church traditionally exits? Those who go to college, oftentimes. You know, we got them in youth group and we had them bob for baby roost and old toilet filled fill with mellow yellow because that was really cool. And we told them that, you know, uh, certain groups were just like Radiohead but Christian. And, and, and we, we did all kind of cool stuff. But what we didn't do is give them what they needed the most as we sent them out into the world, which is a lived reality, a living hope, something they could sink their teeth into and give away. And so this is in critically important to us as a church that we recognize that we can't just talk about it. We can't just have discipleship groups that read books and check things off. At some point, we've got to live it out. At some point, it's got to play out in and among us. Yes? At some point, we have to invite our children into spaces to see and witness us living out the faith so as to train them up. And so what Peter's saying is prepare your minds 
for action. And being sober-minded. So sober-minded just means that you've got some banks of the river, right? This is where systematic theology does come in. You've got to have something that tells you that, that you are within the confines of biblical truth and the gospel, right? That means you've got to know what? Got to be, there you go. Who said it? The Bible. One of your elders, that's great. We're going to be okay. Um, the rest of you I'm a little concerned about. You're like, mm, some, I don't know. John Piper. Uh, and so, so, no, it's the Bible. You have to know the Bible because otherwise, what happens when someone comes along and starts telling you about something strange? Or something that sounds more exciting than what you currently have, right? Something more lived than what you're currently doing. Whether it's the whole new moon Sabbath thing. I don't know why that's coming back. That's a weird, that's a funny one. Um, especially when Colossians and Galatians has already dealt with it like, I don't know, a couple thousand years ago. But we just like new stuff, don't we? And we like to get tangled up in stuff. And we like to, we like to try to predict a blood moon. And we kind of like John Hagee after all. Uh, and, and, and we kind of like a little bit of power and glory that's right now instead of some distant time. We don't like the long arc quotidian life of a Christian where you just have to love people and you love them long over time. And you, and you bear with them. And they, when they don't hurry up and get their stuff together so that you can move on to the next one, failing to recognize that all of heaven breaks out in a party when one comes. And that might be sufficient for your life but it would be eternal in its value and treasure. And so we need to be a people who have the banks of the river in place so that we might be sober-minded, who have studied and prepared and understand uh, our own salvation so we've got something valuable to give away and live out, right? We need to be those kind of people so that it would all be set on, as Peter's going to tell us, our hope being fully in the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That we know that this all has a purpose. That it will one day all be made clear, even if we don't know why right now. That one day, uh, Christ will return and truly make all things new. That one day, we will get to eat the finest of meat and the richest of wines, and there will be no heartburn. Amen? And so, we look forward to this. That is our firm foundation, what Christ has done. And we prepare our minds for action. So we, we are intentional to cultivate, essentially, a well-thought life. Paul says the same thing in Philippians 3. He says, I have not yet arrived, but I strain for the upward call of Christ so that I might be more like him. And he goes on to say, those of you who are mature should think this way. That's strangely, all that language is active and living and, and somewhere along the way, we, we, we've kind of given up or we've kind of gone, well, that's for, that's, reading is for smart people or, or that's, that's something for somebody else. No, it's not. The study of your salvation, yes, it requires some measure of reading and yes, I get it, it's a multi-thousand page book you can read the whole thing at five minutes a day in five years. Be better than what most people have done who've never read it, yet say they're a Christian. I don't understand this. Nor does Bart Ehrmans, who's a radical anti-theist. How are you going to defend something you've got no idea what it really says? You, don't even know, you may not even know how the story ends. At least go read the last couple of pages. Make sure it's all going to be all right. And so, as Karen Job says, Peter's point here is that one is to set one's hope on future grace, not by idle wishfulness or unfounded optimism, but by a mental resolve to live in such a way as to manifest the living hope of the Christian believer. The Christian hope is a reality to be recognized and acted upon now, not at some future time. 
And this is where community comes in, and we are in great need of one another to be able to say to each other, first of all, let me encourage you. Second of all, let me edify you. Let me build you up. But see, we, we cut ourselves off from being known because we're worried. We're worried to death that somebody's going to figure out just exactly how imperfect we are. As if that's the worst thing in the world. Remembering or forgetting that God loved you knowing all of your imperfections, past, present, and future, even the ones you don't know about yet. So what are some ways in which you are intentionally cultivating a well-thought life so as to set your hope fully on the return of Christ? How are you cultivating your mind, preparing yourself to live out the, the truth and the beauty of the gospel? This doesn't mean that you have to go be a missionary, and it doesn't mean that you have to do anything grand. Maybe you start with recognizing, I got, I got a short temper. Which, by the way, doesn't display the glory of God as it turns out. And is antithetical to the fruits of the Spirit, and it's not an attribute of God to be displayed. And so how might you take that and cultivate your understanding of salvation so as to engage and deal with that because you recognize that that is crushing your witness in various contexts and that you wouldn't let up until the Spirit has done a work to deconstruct that in you. That's a simple one, actually. So what are you doing to be intentional in cultivating this? I love the, this, this quote from Horace in his odes to Lolius Maximus. That sounds like a contradiction in names to me, but it's the dude's name. And he says, you need to interrogate the writings of the wise. Did you hear the way he said that? You need to interrogate the writings of the wise. Meaning if you want to know how to live the good life, a virtuous life, a life of meaning, you must engage in those who have which Paul calls us to do in his letters. Peter's doing the same. Christ does the same. You need to interrogate. That means get in, get active, get down. Where are you doing that? Are you doing that? Because if you're not, you will not be cultivating uh, uh, your minds in any way, shape, or form, and you are not going to cultivate a well-thought life. Let's turn back to the text. This is verses 14 through 16. Here again, the word of the Lord as Peter goes on. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, I think this may be one of the most misunderstood passages in all of the Bible. I think that when we hear this, we immediately think one of a couple of things. First of all, we think, well, God's saying we equate holy with perfect. How many of you do that? Uh, one person was willing, a few of you, yeah. We equate holy with perfect, and, and let, let me help you at least here. In, in this context, now, one of the things that we struggle with is that some words are used in different ways in different places, depending on the context and the motif that it's trying to get across. In this context, it is not talking about being perfect, because how could you do it? How could you ever be perfect in your conduct? Now, you may say, if you're slightly wicked and know a little theology, well, isn't everything I do perfect in Christ before the throne of God in eternity future? Yes, but that doesn't change now, and what he's talking about is living it out now. So it's not about perfection now, so be free of that burden of thinking that God just handed. So think about it. Peter gives you all this good stuff for 13 verses, or at least 12, and then he springs on you, and now go be perfect, you jerks. Or I think what we hear and this is in the same key as that issue of perfection, what we hear is that God, this is one of God's kind of sadistic cruelties or his slight sarcasm. He likes to give us stuff that we can't accomplish in a billion years, even if we tried, just to mess with us so we constantly have to come find him. He gives you the unsolvable riddle so you'll come back to him angry and frustrated and hurt. Is that, is that consistent at all with the first 12 verses of Peter? 
It is not. It's not consistent with anything in the Bible. But I think that sometimes we think that he likes just giving us the, the unmovable stone just to keep us in our place instead of setting us free to bear his image and be transformed into the image of Christ. So what does he mean here? Well, let's walk back through the text for context. As obedient children, so straight away he's saying that you have to recognize who you are in reference to me and what all that means. And so you know if you're an heir, then you have access to all of the spiritual blessings. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 1. So to be an obedient child is to recognize your childness, your, your reference to the Abba Father. So would an Abba Father be this cruel to give you something that's going to keep you weighed down and broken? No. As he goes on, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Notice the contrast to the call to cultivate uh, our minds for action and be sober-minded. So our former, the way we lived formerly, it just is, it's just ignorant. And, and we know it to be so. If you hash through it, uh, I, I didn't say a lot that was real smart along the way. And in fact, early in my, and you're going to love this, early in my Zen Christian days, uh, yeah, I read the book by uh, Phil Jackson and thought that'd be a cool thing to be. That's, that just sounds smart, doesn't it? Sounds like you're getting better all the time. Uh, some basketball coach says be, be a Christian because he won a few championships. I can be a Zen Christian. That's easy. And when Susan says something about, you might want to read the book of Romans. I'm like, I'm not Roman. <laughs> need that. Hebrews? <laughs> not a Hebrew. I'm out. I don't need it. So I got to smorgasbord, pick and choose the Bible. And I was dead serious and thought I was smart, right? I would hit Susan with a Zen cone. Like I was just blowing her mind, right? So what's the answer to the sound of one hand clapping? Does anybody know? Susan can tell you, I put my shoes on my head and I walk out of the room. That's just brilliant. Like you guys are like, man, the brilliance, it just came out. It's unbelievable. Cultivate that, right? That's just silliness is what that is. And I was just as ignorant as I could possibly be at the top of my lungs, which is Ambrose Bierce's definition of the term positive in the devil's dictionary. I was just wrong at the top of my lungs. And my, my passions drove me. And I thought I was doing something amazing. Like, who doesn't want to wind up uh, a broken alcoholic with all these broken relationships so some country song can finally make sense about your life? I was on that trip. I kind of thought that was kind of cool. Well, that's ignorant. And you were too, in many respects. Some of you more pridefully so about other things. But, but he's saying is, he's saying, don't be conformed. Don't be shaped by all that former ignorance. You've been set free to be something so much greater than all that. And then he says, but he who has called you is holy. You also be holy in your conduct. And then he goes on to quote, more than likely, Leviticus 19. It's also mentioned in Leviticus 11 and a little bit in Leviticus 20, but within the book of Leviticus. But 19 is a critical chapter in Leviticus because it says, be holy for your God is holy. And then it lists out all these ways in which you are to live in the world. So to be holy has something to do with how you live, not your perfection. And so when it says that God is holy, and, and when we make the connection with what he's talking about in Leviticus, it means that he's other than, he is set apart. So what he's saying here to us is be exiles, elect exiles as it turns out, and reflect the otherness of God with how you live, which means that you need to understand God's attributes, the communicable ones, to use a big word, that means the ones that you can do. Incommunicable ones would include, I don't know, omniscience, omnipotence, all the omnis, the things you can't do. But what you can do is be long-suffering. But only if you've cultivated the truth of salvation and the gospel in you, because how many of you have tried to be long-suffering outside of the grace of the gospel? What you can do is be forgiving. Anybody tried to forgive without the grace of the gospel applied to you already and then given away? What you can do is be just. What you can do is be kind. 
What you can do is be steadfast in your love because of covenant with one another. But only, only in the power of the gospel. And those things resonate in this world. We don't know what to do with them. I've shared this with you before that Rolling Stone ran a cover story about a United Methodist minister. He was the cover story of Rolling Stone. Because his son was brutally murdered by a drifter. And the drifter really didn't care that he had killed this guy's son or that he grieved at all. But this minister kept visiting him in prison. And this man became a believer. And when he got out after seven years, they began to tour and talk about forgiveness. And nobody knew when they would do the tour, nobody knew what the thing was. They just knew it was something about forgiveness. But nobody knew what the story was. So you'd have a, a guy stand up and say, hey... My son was brutally murdered. He'd tell that part of the story, and then the other guy would stand up and say, and I am the man who murdered him. And they would put their arms around each other. Whew. I don't know if there's anything more powerful. But the gospel was a huge part of that. And the crazy thing is, Rolling Stone didn't say one negative thing about the gospel. In fact, they were in utter shock and awe. The world has been utterly drawn into what went on in South Africa when Desmond Tutu did the, the, the forgiveness hearings. They've been blown away by the forgiveness stuff that's gone on in Rwanda. All of it related to the gospel. And they say, well, you're Methodists and so they have right theology. They got right Jesus. That's helpful to start there. And so we would do well to display that much beauty and forgiveness. So when he says be holy, what he's saying is be set apart as I am set apart. Look like me. Look like me and my attributes, but you got to know the attributes. And you may say, well, where are they? Yeah, it's a big Bible. I can't go just looking around. Well, let me help you. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is God's declaration and confession of himself. And it's the most quoted verse in all of the Old Testament. Why? Because it's critical to who we are as people. And he told him in Exodus 19 that you're a royal priesthood set apart to be a holy nation. You'd be a city on a hill, essentially. That same thing has been given to us by Jesus in Matthew 5 and by Peter. He's going to tell us in chapter 2 that we are to be the same thing. That means, I don't care, so please hear me. Every single one of you in this room who claims to be a Christian as of today, you have a gift, you have a calling, you have a responsibility. And that gift is salvation in Christ Jesus. That calling is to display God's glory as a result of that salvation. Your mission is to do that in every sphere that you're in. And the way that, now you may say, well, I got, what about specific gifts? Absolutely, that's where, it, that's where it really gets interesting, is the broad creativity and gifting of the Holy Spirit. And what a beautiful thing. But nobody, I don't care what your gift happens to be, has a different calling than that. That's specified, it's contextualized, but none of you can say, well, I'm, a, I'm just a, I'm a Christian. You know, I kind of let it just be, and I don't really think too much about it. You know, we get too tangled up. You don't have that liberty. I know. I know. I don't like it either. But every single one of us in here ought to be praying for the making of disciples and participating in it in some way, shape, or form. Not everybody has to look the same. And if you're not, then you're robbing yourself of what it means to be holy. You're robbing yourself of being able to grow in power and glory. You are robbing yourself of the essence of the gospel. And so, this is not meant to be a crown of thorns to us. And not only did he say be holy, but he gave you the Holy Spirit. I think that first word's kind of critical and helps us to be holy. He gives us the scripture to describe what that looks like and mean. He gives us the, the church, the word preached, prayed, sung, read, 
confessed so that we would know and, and be empowered and nourished to do that. Listen to what um, Lee Beach says of this passage. I love the way he puts it. He says, for Peter, the church is not against the world in that it does not express holiness by reciprocating the world's animosity toward it. That's critical. I think a lot of times that when we do practice holiness, it is in antagonism and animosity to the world. We are declaring not that we're different, we're better. To declare you're better is not holiness, by the way. He says, for Peter, the church is not against the world in that it does not express holiness by reciprocating the world's animosity toward it. And neither does the church demonstrate holiness by condemning the ways of the world with self-righteous living and rhetoric. That's really important. Instead, the church is to be different because it is in relationship with a God who is different. And it is simply trying to stay in step with his ways in the world. So what are some of the ways that you are intentionally cultivating a holy life that reflects God's character for the life of the world? Because if you're not, it is not happening. If you are not actively cultivating your mind and your holiness in some way, shape, or form, it's not happening. Let me finish the, the, the verse here, uh, 17 through 21. This is the call to a life of reverence and awe as a child of God. Listen to what Peter says as he closes out this section. He says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from the forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him uh, are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Notice what Peter just did. He circled right back around to the indicative. He said, you ought to, and that word fear, again, I think what we sometimes hear is that we just need to just do your little offering so God will stay busy at the back of the universe and not come mess with you because it's, it's a really freaky thing when this eternal being shows up and you're right in one respect. But remember the point of the story is that God longs to dwell with his people, to sing songs over them. The whole point of the story is that he would get to be with us, not against us. And so we should show reverence and awe. That's what fear is. Not move away from and cower, but instead move toward bow and worship. So what Peter is calling for us to do is recognize the great gift that you have been given. This is not plan B, which means that, that, that it it's going to do what God determined it would do from the start. That which he began, he will finish. And you've been invited into that. You've been invited into something that's guaranteed. You're not rolling the dice when you share the gospel with your neighbors. You're participating in something that has already begun because God is sovereign and placed you there. Recognize how his sovereignty, in fact, does work in your sphere of influences. Recognize that your children have been given to you as gifts. You don't have to force them into your image and your brokenness, but instead steward them, raise them up to be disciples who know a living hope by virtue of the resurrection and not law and morality whose end is to celebrate self and make you look better. Listen to what Paul Gardner says about this. I love the way he puts it. It is surely one of the deepest demonstrations of God's extraordinary love for believers that he actually planned long, long ago that they, sinful people, would find forgiveness through Christ's death. 
This death in our place required the shedding of his precious blood. It required an extraordinary act of divine mercy as Jesus gave his life for his people. Yet all of this was ordained by God before the creation of the world. Amen. So what are some ways that you are intentionally cultivating a life of reverence and awe as a child of God? This is something that I really want to wrestle with because as a pastor, sometimes it can all feel like work. I work very hard for that not to be true, but it's tough sometimes to just be Abba's child when you have a responsibility for other people. Many of you understand this. If you're a teacher or a parent, you'd get this to some extent. Maybe you're not responsible for 250. So know that I am with you in trying to cultivate this reverence and awe. Because I don't want to be a melancholy cynic. I'm good at it. I don't want to be it. So what does 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21 teach us? It teaches us that we are to set our hope fully on the return of Christ as reflected in how we intentionally cultivate three things. A well-thought life that is prepared for action and response for God's glory. We also cultivate a holy life that reflects God's character for the life of the world. You cannot, you cannot cultivate what you don't know. And and we are to cultivate a life of reverence and awe as a child of the Lord our God. What a great gift that on a day when we have heard all these things and feel probably some weight of, man, that's, that's a lot to do. Cameron gave us a lot to do. He's always doing that. But don't forget the indicative. And don't forget all of the gifts that you're given in the means of grace, like what we get to see here in the table. Remember that the purpose of the table is for us to remember the indicative of God's love for us. That what is displayed in this bread and this overflowing cup is God declaring, I love you. And I'm coming for you long before and and when you would never come for me. I'm coming for you. And in this table is the indicative of the hope that is in the return of Christ. It looks back, it is present, and it looks forward. It is the the spiritual nourishment that we need so desperately to cultivate these things. You cannot do it in your own strength. We need the means of grace. And so, as we take of the bread and the cup this morning, would you be considering and giving thanks for that God, though he has asked you to do some stuff, gave you everything you needed and more to do it in such a way that makes him say, well done, good and faithful servant.